0: All right, guys, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Got a, got a nice lengthy one for you today. Had a great conversation late last week with uh, golf course designer Bill Core. Um, We've You've heard us talk a lot about a lot of his golf courses. Got the opportunity to learn a bit more, a bit more from him on where he got his inspiration from and his philosophies. And uh, I know we've done a lot of architecture stuff lately, but I, this is this is a really good one, I felt. And I uh, was really, really excited that uh, Bill was willing to spend so much time with us. He's joining us as part of our partnership with Charles Schwab. Uh, you know we've talked we've had uh, several people on Casey Martin, Mike Kaiser as part of the Challenger series that they do. I've encouraged you guys in the past go to schwabgolf.com. Check out these videos. They're 4 minutes long, 5 minutes long and just talk a bit about uh, about some of the people that have been really influential in the game of golf in recent years and Bill Core is definitely one of them. The, the cinematography of these things is awesome and they're really inspiring for 5 minute videos, stuff like that. schwabgolf.com For more information, there. Uh, If you guys like our video content, you're going to absolutely love that because it looks a hell of a lot better than ours does. Uh, And before we get going, I have a a bit of a confession to make. Actually, before we do that, I want to give a shout out to my Fredx Cup team, uh, sweeping first, second, and second place. Uh, I had two guys tie for second place, and Lonto Griffin won it. Um, It's it's looking like a runaway. It's it's a tough scene. The first year they actually let me draft for myself. And uh, I believe that puts us over $4 million in earnings for the year. So shout out to the squad. Um, And before we get going here, I have a bit of a confession to make. Um, I cheated on Truvis this past weekend. I put the soccer ball patterns, the Callaway Chrome Softs, the Truvis patterns that you've heard me rave about. I put them away for a little bit and tried out the triple track. I have not done the triple track. It, It was just a little weird to me. It was a little too much information. I don't trust my putting stroke, and it was... You know, that, that line was just a bit too... I, I, stand, I mark it, and I stand over it, and I change my line every time anyways. So the triple track was never that appealing to me. put the new Jaws wedges in the bag as well. So the combination of those two things, two new things uh, for my game, and I shot my lowest score of the year on Saturday. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you've heard me talk a lot about the Jaws wedges, the groove and groove technology, uh, the, the tightest walled edges that are possible in a wedge, and uh, it's it made a big difference, and the golf ball was tremendous. So I can't wait to see. Uh, can't wait to see what else the triple track brings me. Uh, CallawayGolf.com for more information. Without any further delay, here is the legend, Mr. Bill Cor. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Joined today by someone we've wanted to have on for quite some time is it's Bill Cor from the Cor and Crenshaw Design Group. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. I think we actually caught you at home today. How many days a year are you actually home? Oh, gee, Chris. Well, first of all, thanks for having
1: me. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, you would think I would know the answer to that question easily. And I, I don't. Obviously, it varies. But uh, I'm generally gone from home, you know, over 200 days a year and usually more in the 220 or 30 range. And,
0: Is that number getting any smaller later in your years? Uh, not really. Not really. You know, it's uh, it's been pretty
1: consistent, uh, Chris. And I'm so fortunate to do my wife is, has her own business. She travels a great deal still as well. And But we work our schedules out uh, as much as we possibly can to travel together. And then, of course, when we're home, we we just stay home. People kid us all the time. So, well, where do you go? Where's your favorite places in Scottsdale to eat or go or this, that, and other? And we just go home. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> when When we come home, we stay home.
0: All right. Well, I know you are a busy person. We appreciate your time. Got a lot of topics to discuss here, but uh, I want to start broad. It's what we typically like to do, and kind of understanding where your background in golf comes from, where your passion for architecture comes from, um, and kind of. I know you worked with Pete Dye. I wanted to know what your timeline was for your introduction into the golf industry, and what made you want to work with Mister Dye as well.
1: Well, Chris, I'd been exposed to golf, you know, as a young person growing up in the out in the very rural part of North Carolina, not near any cities or really any significant towns in terms of population. But, uh, my next door neighbor, uh, we lived down a dirt road. We were like, there was one other house on this dirt road besides the, uh, our two homes and, but he enjoyed playing golf. And so he's the one who got me exposed to it first, uh, just hitting balls around in the, between uh, his family's yard and our yard. And, and uh, then later caddying and then playing golf with him. So I was exposed to it early, but uh, just, you know, like most of us who enjoy the game, it was, it was just that, it was an enjoyment of the game and particularly of a game that could be played you know, by yourself. I mean, because there, there were just not many people around where I grew up. So, Hitting balls across the yard and through the fields and even in the cornfields when the, when the corn was plowed under uh, was a, a part of my uh, adolescence.
0: A lot of us have played a lot of your golf courses, and I just want to kind of get as best I can an understanding of where you got your inspiration from. Uh, was there anything you played kind of or encountered in your younger years that kind of made the light bulb go off for you in terms of, you know, what you really liked about golf courses and why you wanted to, to design them yourself?
1: Well, there was, Chris. I mean, growing up in Davidson County, North Carolina, I played basically public, very, very inexpensive public golf courses. (laughs) To say they were rudimentary would be a vast understatement. But that being said, my neighbor took me a couple of times when I was young to Pinehurst and played and then later when i was in high school and uh and in college i would uh, continue to go back to pinehurst particularly in the summers which was their at that time in their you know the history of pinehurst it was, it was that was their slow period in terms of uh, resort guests so the fees were you know heavily discounted and you could play all the golf you wanted to in one day and We would often, if somebody had a car, we would often drive to Pinehurst and play 54 holes a day carrying our bags. So without question, playing at Pinehurst, not just on number two courses, number two course, but the others, was my first introduction to what interesting golf and interesting golf architecture is all about. And I can't truthfully say I I was aware of it uh, or not significantly aware of it at the time. But as the years went by and I kept becoming more and more exposed to that type of golf it became a a cornerstone of what i later came to believe was you know really interesting and enjoyable golf and golf architecture
0: well what was your i guess your next step from there did you become you know a book reader how did you how did you kind of learn uh more about it and what really inspired you to do that
1: well i went to school at wake forest uh
0: chris and and there again uh pinehurst had uh
1: uh, I guess you'd say was the introduction into into interesting golf and golf architecture. But then uh, while, while at Wake Forest, uh, Old Town Club, a Perry Maxwell-designed course uh, that's uh, immediately adjacent to the campus at Wake Forest uh, and was open to the students at Wake Forest at the time, uh, probably still is, but... Uh, um, I would uh, I, I would go there every chance I got, carry my clubs across the campus and right onto the golf course and begin playing and, and uh, the influence of Old Town Club in Winston Salem and combined particularly with the influence of number two course at Pinehurst were without question the cornerstones of my appreciation for golf and especially golf architecture.
0: Wow. Well, it might, we'll get to some of those, but it had to be uh, pretty thrilling for you later in your life to uh, get a chance to uh, do v- renovation work at both of those golf courses. But um, you are you a lot of people that uh, are making big waves in the golf you know, world these days, worked for Pete Dye. Uh, I'm curious, how did you end up working with Pete Dye and did you cross paths with any other uh, big names while uh, you know doing some shaping and work, uh, work with Mr. Dye?
1: Well, Chris, I, um, I I had really no ambition or intention or even <laughs> thought of being in the golf course design business uh, when I was playing golf, you know, in my early years, and then even when I was at Wake Forest, it was uh, I had actually planned to be a university professor and and uh, play a bit of amateur golf. That's what I I sort of envisioned uh, would be a you know nice way to to you know to go through life and um but i spent a couple years well more than almost three years actually uh in the army uncle sam decided i should do that instead of uh going to graduate school after i graduated from wake forest and uh when it was when i was about to to get out of the army chris that uh i saw a course that pete I was doing public golf course called Not too far from where I lived in in North Carolina, and it was very different. I didn't know who Pete Dye was. I'd never heard the name. I knew nothing like that. It was it was in the still in the, you know, the era of Robert Trent Jones Sr. But I saw this golf course. It was so different. It was very much of the harbor town type uh, mode and shorter golf course based on finesse with quirky things like railroad ties and pot bunkers and uh, just so different than than what was prevalent in terms of the courses that were being put forth at the time. And I thought, wow, this is this is interesting and and it it got me thinking again about playing off at Old Town, playing at Piners, playing at different places and thinking, This is neat. I I wonder how you do this. And uh I had no clue. But I was I was then Coming upon that, you know, that watershed event, I guess, of of having to decide: am I going to go to graduate school, or am I going to do something different? And you know, once you're away from school for two and a half years, you it's not necessarily the easiest thing to just go back. And I was fascinated by what Pete was doing there, so I badgered a guy on the maintenance crew uh, to give me his number, his phone number, and <laughs> I I started calling Pete just you know just out of the blue he was very polite but you know he was not certainly not offering (laughs) anything (laughs) but I one thing led to another and I just I finally convinced him that I I really would like to work on a golf course if you were doing one and anywhere remotely near where I lived and and then not too long after that he did start the Cardinal Golf Club in Greensboro North Carolina and I could drive to that from, you know, from my home and I was fortunate enough, you know, Chris, he, for whatever reason, I think it's because I just aggravated him so much probably, but he, he just finally, he told John Gray, who was the, the construction superintendent on that job, he says, give this guy something to do. So I started as a laborer and then an equipment operator and one thing and another, and, you know, it, it went from there, but uh, up until that point, I was really extraordinarily ignorant when it came to golf architecture. I just knew what appealed to me in terms of uh, certain features of, of golf courses, but I'd not studied it that much. It was only after starting to work for Pete and then later going to Florida to work in a place called Johns Island in Florida for Pete. And. I was so, so much not a key person on the crew that when Pete and Alice died, would go out of town, they would often ask me to babysit their two German shepherd dogs, Otto and Gypsy, two white German shepherds at their house. And when I did that, I discovered in the library there, all these architect Goff architecture books, which I, you know, out of certainly interest, but I probably, to be candid, sometimes boredom would just start reading and uh, studying, and it was only in later years then that I realized and discovered that Ben Crenshaw was, had been reading these same books, and so that, in, in a very sort of circuitous way, became a, a connection we had even before we knew each other.
0: Well that's that ties into what I was gonna kinda get to next with uh what, what your career steps were after working with Mr. Dye. You uh you, you broke out on your own there for a while and then how did you and, and Ben end up meeting? How did you guys, you know, decide that you would be great partners to work together and uh how long did you guys know each other before you went into business together?
1: Well, Chris, I you're right. I Pete Pete had sent me to uh uh, to work with his brother Roy at a, at a golf project in Texas, in East Texas, and uh, I was there that I, I actually ended up inheriting the golf course superintendent's job, and, and being there for uh, I think six six years, I believe, and in in that capacity. And uh, while that was while I was there, the then project manager of where I was in East Texas came to me one day, and he said, "Bill, I know this is what you're doing as superintendent, but I know you've really expressed some interest in, being in the golf course design business, and I know some people in down the Gulf Coast of Texas, and uh, they need someone desperately <laughs> to be their golf course architect." So he took me down and introduced me to some folks at a place called Rockport uh, in in Texas uh, down on the Gulf Coast, and. They were, Chris, they were desperate for whatever reasons. They were in the process of building nine holes and had parted ways with their original golf architect. And they had equipment working out there and they were pretty They were like, OK, you want to do this? Here's our budget, which was minuscule, to say the least. Hmm. And and here's the thing. You can't spend one dollar more. And they're working out there now. So you you can do it if you if that's what you want to do I, I remember immediately leaving the room meeting with them and walking out there and seeing equipment running and, and uh, oh my gosh so you talk about <laughs> stepping off in the deep end of a pool i guess it was but uh that was my initial step into golf course design from that project which um uh, interesting enough was quite well received and uh once it was completed and another nine holes we added to it and it was a the project manager of another project on the Gulf Coast of Texas who had seen that course and had called me about potentially looking at a proposed site for a for his proposed golf course and it was terrible, Chris. I mean, it was. <laughs> he was a nice man, but the site was terrible. It went underwater, high tide, salt water. I mean, so even if you dredged it up, it was black gumbo and full of salt. And I just remember uh, saying to him, his name was Charlie Belair, and I, I just remember saying, Charlie, I still so appreciate you. Thank you. We just can't build a golf course here. And he said, okay. And then he he asked me a question that. I'd been asked a number of times before. Chris it was like, "You know, you've done this interesting golf course, but obviously no one's ever heard of you. And why don't you work with a well-known player?" And I, it wasn't, it wasn't something I'd given really much thought to, nor was I particularly interested in, to be perfectly candid, Chris. So I just, I just, I sort of passed it off. And he said, "Well, if you could, oh, who would you work with?" Well, this is 1984, mm-hmm. and Ben Ben had just won the Masters, literally, probably a month before this. And I'd read, well, maybe it must have been a couple of months, because I'd read some magazine articles after Ben won the Masters. And he's talking about his love of reading about golf history and golf architecture. And I could tell this like, this guy, this guy's actually read about this. He's He's very knowledgeable, you know. About golf architecture and golf courses, and so I just sort of blurted out, probably as much as anything, to end the conversation with Charlie Belair, <laughs> just saying, "Well, I don't know, but if if it were anybody, it'd probably Ben Crenshaw. He seems to have a love for this and a, and a great knowledge of it." Lo and behold, Charlie Belair took it upon himself to call Ben's then business manager, trying to put get Ben and I to come together at his project that I had you know, recently looked at. Jolly Belair calls me back and he says, Bill, he said, Ben Crenshaw is coming down here on such, such a date. Would you come and I want to get the two of you together? So that's in essence how it happened, Chris. Ben shows up on the Gulf Coast of Texas. I show up the same day. We've never met each other. We're introduced. We're there. We go out to look at this site. Of course, Ben looks at it. And immediately, you know, it's just, it's, well, you can't build a golf course here. <laughs> and he says, this is fine for coastal development of homes, but not for golf. And so there's a whole other backstory of this I won't go into, but it just ended up being that Ben and I ended up spending the rest of the day together, you know, just talking about golf architecture and stuff. And Ben had heard about the course that the guys and I had done on the Gulf Coast, when it was, you know, it was an event. Twenty-minute drive, so we drove over and we walked around the golf course we'd done. And Ben was talking about you know he he'd heard about it, he liked it, and that sort of thing. And for the rest of that year, and and the majority of the year after, uh, you know, '84 and then '85, we would just have a reoccurring con- phone conversations about golf architecture and courses. And we met a few times, and we'd go walk around a few golf courses and there was never any discussion about working together that just sort of evolved out of this what became you know a mutual interest in in the subject of architecture and and uh, to this day chris and i've, I've said this before and but i can recall no great event or dinner or or too many beers or anything else at which point we said why don't we do one of these it there was no absolute moment that that occurred it just sort of evolved into well maybe let's let's just see see if we if we thought about doing one of the uh, one of these courses together how would we go about doing it and, and and we went from there. So it really was an evolutionary thing.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's interesting because, you know, in my personal experience, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but most players, you know, especially top players, just have suspect histories designing golf courses and that maybe they don't have the best understanding of how 99% of amateurs, you know, play the game. And they just don't come from that, you know, core experience that you had, like learning from a seasoned architect, right? I mean, they've seen golf courses that they like, but, you know, it might be because that fits their, their game for a tournament style. So I, I was always curious now that's a good question for Mr. Crenshaw too, of just how his understanding and appreciation for golf courses, where that comes from, because a lot of professionals don't really have, a, you know, an architectural mind, at least from like a playability and a fun standpoint, I can't think of too many, you know, golf courses I've played that uh, famous you know, players have designed that are as fun and, and entertaining and engaging as the courses uh, that you guys, uh, you know, create, but how, how does, how does it work between the two of you? I mean, how does, how does the work get divided up? And I mean, I imagine it varies from project to project, but is there overri- overriding kind of duty understanding between the two of you?
1: Um, not, not specifically, Chris, it's, um, you know, we, we explore opportunities in terms of, uh, if, if, if a potential client calls or, contacts us about uh, the possibility of working with them on a the site. And uh, we try to both go see the, you know, the proposed site and see if it if it looks like it has potential for golf. And, uh, uh, you know, we, in, in the perfect world, we try to go together to do that or at least both see it, you know, at very at different times. There have been times that uh, we've actually agreed to, to work on, courses where I only saw the site and you know and felt strongly that it was something interesting and there have been a couple of times where Ben saw the site and thought it was something interesting and you know our preferences and our uh, well our, our personalities and our philosophies are very closely aligned uh, Chris and and our preferences for property are closely aligned as well so um, it's been this sort of combination of of studying property and and then coming to a conclusion whether it's uh, you both of us standing on the site or one of us seeing it and talking to the other that this is something interesting we should pursue this once that's the case if there's been any more consistent delineation of duties it's um i've probably historically in our career uh done most not all but most of the uh routings for the golf courses and that's very simply uh chris because you know particularly when ben was still playing a lot of golf yeah i had i had more time and routing a golf course is very time consuming very at least the way we do it because we walk the property we study it we try to get the feel of it and it's um, obviously done in conjunction with mapping and that sort of thing but still it's a time-consuming process so I have done the bulk of that we then study those routings we make alterations to them you know as we walk the ground you know with with different routing options and potentials and uh, come to a you know agreement between us what's the what is the best routing and what is the best sequence of holes and then what's the concept that uh, we feel like the golf course should be you know to to fit the routing but complement the property and and we do that together so we create the concepts together we we then go through the process with these extraordinarily talented folks with whom we work you know on the ground and and We present concepts for the design of the individual, features, you know, and 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 holes and the overall course. But they're just that, Chris. They're just concepts. And from that point, we become very much editors, allowing the guys we work with to do their own own site implementation of concepts, but knowing they have the freedom to veer from those concepts uh, at any time if they see something in their experience or their from their perspective could actually be better so that's where we become more the editor type thing observing what they're doing and then trying to guide the process through it
0: well, I was going to save this one maybe towards the end, but this seems like a good uh, a good time to ask it. Man, I don't know if you could tell the story of what, uh, at least the story we heard of what happened with the second green at Lost Farm.
1: The second
0: green at Lost Farm. Well, I don't know what story you might have heard there. <laughs> <laughs> we heard. I don't know who it was. I don't want to. Put, I heard that. Uh, somebody may have been, uh, a little bit, um, l- something was still in their system, maybe from the night before and ended up creating a ridge through the green that was not intended. And then somebody looked at it and said, actually, you know what, that actually kind of works.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think what you're referring to is, uh, Dave Axelin who's worked with us for so many years, actually Dave and I've worked together longer than I have. And, uh, Dave was, um, was there at lost farm and we had talked about where the second green was going to be and we had talked about it could be over here to the right it could be over there to the left or it was a big wide fairway that would offer all sorts of latitude and different angles of play and um yeah dave dave had gone in and, and the next morning they brought some sand and piled it all up and it was it was piled up kind of in the middle of the green to use either to the left or to the right. And and I remember walking back there and looking at it early in the morning and walking around the days, and, and uh, we were talking about right, left, and you go, know, just knock the sand down, knock that down, let's make a ridge, something. let's see what it is. And Dave literally went down there in a matter of about two hours, knocked it around some we walked back the fairway and looked at it and thought, let's just make the whole thing green. We'll make what's the part that was going to be the right green is in it, the part' going to be the left green, and the middle with the you know with the dune ridge type thing in it as well. So that's um, that that I'm assuming is what you're referring to right there. And, yeah, that was Dave Axland, and that was that was me standing out there. And it's a, it's a prime example, Chris, of how we started with a concept of a green in one spot and then looking at it in the field and saying, well, the green could be here based on how the fairway bunkering is going to be. And then realizing when dirt, or in this case, sand, was piled in between those two spots, looking at it and thinking, maybe the most interesting thing of all is to make it all green, a big, wide, shallow green that you could approach, depending on where the pen is going to be far right, far left, or even part a you know, spot or two in the middle near the ridge, would determine how you want to play to the fairway. And then once that happened, that dictated as we came back the fairway to do some central type bunkers in the midst of a enormously wide fairway that would that could present different avenues of play. So
0: that that's a bit
1: of what you're you're speaking of there, Chris
0: you mentioned there's centerline bunkers and I kind of want to that's one of the topics I wanted to discuss as well, but you know, people people will kind of kid us for how excited we get about centerline bunkers sometimes, but can you can you explain the concept of the centerline bunker and why that adds so much intrigue to a golf hole? I know some of the uh, some of the, I can picture pretty vividly the third hole at Trails. Great centerline bunker there on the par five, but you know why? Why it's a concept you guys use pretty frequently and really well. So explain that to, to listeners that maybe don't quite fully understand why. Hey, there's a bunker in the middle of my fairway. What's that doing there? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, they're they're often so effective in just influencing thought and breaking up the 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 what we saw often for over a period of years or saw as the best place to play is the middle of fairway, middle of fairway, middle of fairway. You'd hear that on television. You know, you just hear, and the fairways got so narrow that the middle of fairway is the only place you could play almost to be in the fairway. That became a very standardized form of golf, particularly here in America. But Ben and I were both enamored of uh, so many of the old courses that gave you so much more latitude in terms of width of the fairway. But it was not uncommon to see a bunker or a mound or you know, a feature that was some sort of a, a contour that was right in the absolute spot where you most players would most want to be in some cases it's the safest spot to be right in the middle and and so you know we would see those old old courses with that with that sort of thing and we'd read the stories about Whether it's a myopia hunt club where they didn't put the bunkers in until, you know, they go out and watch, watch the players, the best players play the course, and wherever the most, the the shots of the very best players ended up off the tee is often where the bunker was placed, Hmm. and and to give the best players uh, to create thought, not just randomly. You know, play between one side and another, like kicking field goals. But if, there, if there's a centralized bunker right exactly where you most want to be, uh, particularly I'm talking about very accomplished players, then a decision has to be made. They're like, ooh, I really want to be as close to that as I can. Do I play short of it, left of it, right of it, or am I capable of hitting over it? And that is much more thought-provoking than just an expanse of fairway out there between some heavy rough on both sides. So yeah, there was a, a, a golf architect. I'm sure you've, you've read about Max Bayer from California, who who actually wrote a whole treatise on this uh, central type hazards in golf. Uh, he called it the line of charm, and uh, it, it's 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 just it's been one of the most interesting aspects of golf architecture throughout history and so we're not doing anything new we're just just—we're uh, just carrying on i guess a bit of tradition
0: yeah and i think you know along the, along the same thought process it's really obvious to me i can almost tell kind of what era a course was born in by saying you know if if the landing area is you know at, between at 275 yards there's a bunker on the left and a bunker on the right And the question that's being asked is like, hey, hit it between these two bunkers. Or, you know, compared to like some of the places I've played in the UK where they stagger the bunkers along the fairway the bunker the fairway might be lined with you know a couple hazards on each side but they're at different yardages so you are given a kind of a decision of like okay I want to take on I'm going to go carry this bunker at 220 but I need to stay short of the one at 250 but that's going to bring the one at 235 on the right side right. into play and I think that that is the, the the big difference is you know just just giving people that kind of thought Makes such a it's such a different, more different experience. You know, you go to some place like, say, take Hazeltine for example. A lot of the questions are like, hey, "I see the two bunkers, I got to hit it between. I don't know if I can do it, but I that's the, that's really my only option here. And that's just not nearly as interesting uh, of a style of play as I think is what we're what we're talking about here.
1: I couldn't agree more, Chris. Just I could not possibly agree more. I mean, generally speaking, if you the if you create situations in golf that dictate how uh, how the hole is to be played. Um, that that most often becomes the easiest form of golf for the very best players and the uh, and most difficult for the average or lesser skilled players. I mean, you can, you know, for the best, very best players, uh, you, you can put something on the right, something straight across it from the left, and even – Cut off something in front at a certain yardage, and and just give them a nice, neat field goal or box in which to hit tee shots, and they can do it. It frames it in perfectly visually, mm-hmm. and they have the physical you know, skills and talent to be able to hit that shot, particularly once they can focus on it, and they can do it repeatedly. And uh, and yet the the lesser skill players <laughs> not so sure where his or her ball is going is, uh, is at a huge disadvantage in that. And as if you, you do it more in the fashion you just described, in a staggering fashion, it creates that thought, again, from those players, ooh, I need to play over this one, but I better be left to that one or right to that one. I got, uh, anytime you can create thought, you create interest uh, for all classes of golfers
0: and along those same lines you know you talked about it when it comes to you talked about the latitude and what it comes to what what makes it important you know to have these centerline bunkers but for for those that you know maybe struggle with the concept of width what what is i think it can get misconstrued to being wide just means easier and then when people say they want things wider they just want the golf course to be easier how do you introduce more challenge that comes with say a wider fairway and, and kind of explain that for people that uh, maybe just think that wider means easier
1: well chris I, I width we happen to believe is 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 crucial to interesting golf. Uh, for reasons we just discussed about different angles of tee shots and that sort of thing. But I know the perception is that makes it that makes it easier. It depends. If you have very wide fairways and very soft conditions where it's kind of like dartboards boards and you can pinpoint, you know, if a ball lands here, it's only going to run 10, 12 yards or 15 or something. That's one thing. Then width does most likely become easier. Width combined with firmness and angles. Width, if it's just width straight away, with no central bunkers or no central features, then uh, okay, I I could possibly fall in line with the argument. It makes it easier because even if it's firm, the ball's just going to roll further, and you're you're hitting down this wide, wide corridor. If width is there but set on diagonals or different angles and and staggered, uh, staggered directions off the tee. And particularly that combined with a little bit of tilt of the ground and firmness of the turf then all of a sudden width looks enticing and it, it becomes certainly no more easier and not easier in terms of getting your ball into the fairway. Because with firmness, even with width, if you're playing across an angle and you say, "Boy, I better pick the right angle. If you don't, you play a little too conservatively. The firmness or the tilt of the ground or all that combined in some cases with some wind carries the ball right through what appears to be really wide fairways into the rough or into whatever is on the, you know, the far side. And so you it just encourages different angles of play and different thought for can I do this physically or am I mentally set to play this shot on this angle? Knowing that you can do it, it allows you to do it, but you, ha- you still have to be. Precise. Uh, I mean, width if done really well can also demand precision.
0: That's that's you know, listeners of this podcast have heard me cite this example many many times. But my first time playing the old course, I I I protect against a right miss. That's my miss, and you know I usually don't go left too badly. But I I went out on that front nine. And I was just in love with the tee shots. I, how e- this couldn't be any easier. Look how much room I have to the yeah, left. Yeah. My only real risk here is I might hit someone coming right. down the back nine because right. you got these shared fairways. Right. And I would get up and I couldn't get it up, the ball on the green from the left side. Exactly. And I just I was like, I hate this place. I don't understand yeah. it. Yeah. I you know I can't you know I can't hit wedges off this firm turf. And I can't how am I supposed to carry that bunker? And it took a caddy to point out to me. He's like, no, you need to take on the risk off the tee. You need to play down the right side if you want an angle. And the first couple times I did that and I saw the angles, I was like, oh, oh, now now I get it. So, But like you said – if it's not firm, then all of that goes away, especially when it comes to the top, top level. And Trinity Forest is obviously a well-regarded project of yours. I'm, I'm curious, has it, has it kind of bothered you or concerned you guys at all how the tour event has gone in its first two years being there, being the at and Byron Nelson, either the way it's been set up or like kind of some of the things that players have said about the golf course?
1: Well, I think, you know, Chris, uh, Ben and I and all the guys that worked on it and the folks at Trinity Forest, we, we knew that anytime something is different, yeah, it's going to be uh, subject to uh, – um, Lots of commentary mm-hmm. and some of which is you know like a Trinity Forest, uh, much of which has been very very good, some of which has been far less than positive you know so but we I think everybody knew that going in I, I think um, I think a couple of things have happened at Trinity Forest. one um, and for good reason, the PGA tour was very uh, cautious you know, mm-hmm. uh, the first two years and particularly the first year, uh, because it was going to be such a different golf course. And, uh, you know, they, you know, they for, <laughs> as it's been described before the PGA tour is an entertainment business. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they would like for it to be as positive as it possibly can for everyone, including their players and so they they were they were very cautious about the 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 way the course was set up they were they were nervous about how fast it was playing prior to the tournament you know how firm the greens were and 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 that sort of thing so they were they were pretty protective this past year a little bit less so but still pretty pretty cautious i think as time as time goes by um You'll see the course, or at least hopefully we'll see the course you know both presented and play more the way that uh, it was it was you know intended, which would be very fast and uh and very exposed to the to the wind, which for the first two years, well, last this past year they had huge amounts of rain, so the course played very soft, it rained mm-hmm. huge amounts during the tournament, and then but neither year has there been any wind, which for May in Texas is unbelievable. In the <laughs> spring in Texas you just expect the wind to come whipping across, you know, particularly in the Dallas area. And that golf course was was a great like a lot of it's obviously it's not a Lynx course. It's actually on a landfill. But the contours are such and the openness such that it it's presented like a, a seaside course and as with those seaside courses when there's no wind they play they can play you know quite forgiving but when there's wind it's going to be a whole different process
0: well that's the thing is it just it, it they take the so much of the bite away and it, whether by you know watering the course or natural rain to me and I, I, you can correct me if you disagree here but i've always viewed any, any has, bunkering hazards around the green usually are not very challenging for professionals. Uh, long rough around the green or kind of, you know, ankle deep rough around the green stops the ball very close to the green. And what Trinity Forest has is it has contours that are going to make your ball run away from the hole and far if you get on the wrong side of it. I, we played nine holes out there in January this past year. And I just remember the low scores from it. I was like, oh, we could probably, we'll probably tear this place up. That was most definitely not the case because it had just tons and tons of bites. So how do you, is that something that, you know, it's something that a lot of, you know, golf fans, maybe not a lot of golf fans, at least us here really want to see the players challenged in different ways other than just kind of the same format week after week. How do you go about you know, with the technology as insane as it is, how do you guys factor in for your championship golf courses that you 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 worked on? Trinity Forest, Kapalua, how do you guys go about setting up challenges for professional golfers?
1: Well, I would say first of all, uh Chris, we then and I, n- neither have throughout this period, we've we've been trying to build a few interesting courses. We've not really done one that specifically for tournament play. Trendy Forest hosts the Byron Nelson, yes, but Trendy Forest wasn't built, you know, designed for, you know, PGA Tour golf. It was designed for the members, for guests, for people who would be coming out there, you know, charity events that they hold for public uh, situations. And uh, much like Coppola, Coppola, the plantation course was not designed for tour for for tour golf it was designed for resort and people to have fun and to to in both cases to experience a different type of golf where you could get golf you could play golf on the ground as well as in the air and we're under the right conditions people who weren't strong enough to get the ball to the green and two shots on par fours could land it short and watch it roll long and eventually get up onto the putting surface and, and that sort of thing, just things that we thought were interesting and you didn't see that often anymore, whether it was back in the, you know, at the very beginning in the 1990s, like Kapalua or whether it was more recently in you know, like trendy forest. So we, we just felt like, those two courses, as different as they are, they presented some very, very traditional design concepts and, and encouragement for styles of play, very individual play, depending on the player, even if they were on very non-traditional type sites. So... It was just our way of looking at it and say, We think this is interesting golf and we think it's interesting golf, first of all, for the people who are gonna play it on a regular basis and oh yes, now they're gonna play a professional tournament mm-hmm. on it. We didn't we didn't go out to you know, to to either one and but certainly not trendy forest and say, Oh, we need to make it longer, we need this, we need that because we, that's a losing proposition. Chris, we can't make the course long enough. A, right. a guy from the Dallas Morning News called when we were just finishing up in Trendy Forest. And and uh, I remember him asking, he said, he said, Bill, tell me how you and Ben are doing to, uh, to address the, you know, the players It would be here for the Byron Nelson, you know, with the how far the ball goes today and the players hit their tee shots and so on and so forth. And, I remember Chris just saying to him, I said, we're making the course shorter and wider. Yeah. And he, he of course, thought I was kidding. Yeah. (laughs) He thought, he starts laughing. He says, no, really, what are you going to do? I said, no, that's it. We're making the course shorter and wider because if you, you know, we're giving wit to create decisions off the tees, but also if you drive it through the fairways, you're in a bit of a problematic situation. But also to give angles into these greens, if the greens are firm, the fairways are firm stuff, it does exactly what you just described a few minutes ago, Chris, talking about the old course. You can drive it in the far left side of the fairway in, on, on, let's just say, some hole at Trinity Forest, only to find that the green is angled such a way or bunkered on the front left or the contours or tilts away from the front left somewhere or another that all of a sudden you go, wow. I can't get remotely close to the hole from here,
0: and that's where I think the uh, the one the the softness again has affected that. But two, like the the television networks owe it to the viewers a little bit to start explaining this a little bit better. You know, rather than you know seeing somebody pound a driver and be like, "Yep, that's fine right there." no, it's understanding kind of what sides of the fairway you need to be on and why that why that matters. Do you you've done this for several decades now? Do you see? the gap between professional golf and normal amateur golf widening? And is it becoming, is it a more and more of a challenge for you guys that for these projects that you work on that, uh, that do host professional tournaments?
1: Well, I think there's no question, Chris, it's, it's widening. Uh, you know, the, I don't know the statistics by any means. I just know that, uh, you know, 20 years and more ago, the the difference between the length that the the best players in the world hit the ball and the average golfer was much less difference than it is today. I mean today it's just astronomical. You know. I mean, uh, I don't know what the average player, male player, may drive the ball 210 yards or something. Maybe I don't. I don't. Do, I mean again, I don't know the statistics. Mm-hmm. But you just think about that. <laughs> the average ground tour now is probably approaching 300 and the long ones are far beyond and it, it's just incrementally and sometimes dramatically gotten more and more and more so the discrepancy between the between the best players the most highly skilled players and the average players is just it's just huge and you know we we still try to do our courses really more for the people who are going to be playing they're the vast majority of the time, and we feel like if they're done in such a way that with greens contours or with angles of play or bumpering that sort of thing, and particularly given uh, given wind angles that uh, it's still gonna present interesting situations for the very best players and yes, they may. They may shoot good scores, but they're not likely going to do it every day, you know? Right.
0: Well, yeah, I think it and kind of going back to what we said, it just there just needs to be that bite. I mean, I, I I really enjoy the idea of, you know, giving players opportunities for birdies as long as there's a risk that comes with that. And I feel way too often in professional golf now, it's very safe, very, very easy pars. And, you know, it still might be a challenging birdie, but there's just not that, you know, dividing line of, hey, I may make bogey if I go with this pin, but I might make birdie. It just seems um, kind of, I mean, for somebody that's done this for so long, does it frustrate you at all, either with some of your own work or some of the, the, the people, the architects that you admire? And I personally, I mean, I consider golf courses that are, you know, not only are they historic, but they're all, they're works of art. I mean, and to see some of them rendered, obsolete does it does it frustrate you at all kind of that we've traded in you know for the the sake of I'm not really sure what I mean it's it's a lot of revenue for uh, a lot of people at the top level of the game but is it frustrates you at all to kind of see where the game is heading technologically
1: well I think I I think without question Chris I mean I I think of course (laughs) you know I'm getting to be a pretty old guy now and I but I think you'd talk to almost anyone of of my generation, or even even younger, uh, but who who were still exposed to a different type of golf, which was which was much more strategic and um, uh, you know just a just involved a, a lot of different thought processes than than what we tend to see today. I think I think we do appreciate what we've what we came to know years ago and you, you did i mean you had to appreciate watching someone like sam sneed hit a long iron or tom weisskopf hit a long iron i'm i'm talking about just amazing when hitting long irons very few people in the world could do and i'm talking about even among the best players they didn't do it all that well and it was just it was just incredible to watch the extreme talent and the and the way they would the way they would figure out how to manage their own games and and uh get around the golf course and it seems like the older courses just allowed people different ways to play they did again they just didn't dictate so much that you have to hit between You know, you have to hit to a certain distance, at least to even get in play. And then once you're at this, you have to hit between a point on the right and a point on the left. The field goal again. You have to do that. And you have to play the green and carry the ball in the air to the green, you know, between two bunkers or over a bunker or something. The green, it just seems like a lot of the older courses just gave you different ways that said, we're not going to tell you how you have to play. We're going to give you options, and we're going to let you figure out what's the best way for you to play. And I think, in you know, certainly in years, years gone by, when you saw even among the most successful players in the world, you would see really extraordinarily long players, but they could also be mixed with uh, players who literally drove the ball, not tremendous distances past the average the average uh, the average male golfer, and yet they, you know, some of these players were highly successful in tournament golf, and you could see how you'd go watch them play, and and, and just watch how each each type of player would uh, uh, would con- go about his business, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that's much, quite frankly, I think it's much more interesting. To watch women's golf, yes, you know, because I think you still see that today. You see long players in the women's game, but you also see finesse players, and uh, they're, you know, and the ways they manage to negotiate the, you know, the hazards of a golf course, and and it's 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 really it's it's really quite uh, quite fun to watch.
0: I agree. Yeah, the correlation with driving distance and, and accuracy. I mean, it's it, that's the thing, too. These guys are so freaking accurate with the drives, not only hitting them far, but the correlation has never been stronger towards uh, towards shooting low scores as it is with hitting the ball really far. But um, we, I, I, I can't believe we made it this far without talking Sandhills or really Pinehurst, but I want to start with Pinehurst. It's probably my favorite golf course to play in the United States. For a place that meant so much to you growing up, and getting, I finally get, getting the chance to uh, lay your hands on it. What's the pro- what's that process like? I mean, I know you probably have some ideas of what you want to do. You know, it is a restoration. But at this, you know, with this modern era of technology, you also kind of have to put your own stamp on it. Were you nervous to touch a masterpiece for somebody that like you looked up to as much as Donald Ross in a place that meant so much to you? And did you come into that with a very clear mindset as, as to what exactly what you guys wanted to do?
1: Well, I guess the, the answer to your first question there, Chris, what was it? What was it like? It was terrifying. It was. <laughs> I mean, it was absolutely terrifying, and not just for me, having grown up in North Carolina and experienced Pinehurst as a very young golfer, uh, but for Ben, you know, who had played there many times and in different uh, uh, championships and and so revered the history of, of what the Tufts family and uh, uh, Mr. Ross and of course in more recent years the Dedman family had done uh, for Pinehurst and so yeah it was a it was a daunting proposition and I remember vividly Ben and I going there and when uh, Bob Deadman, owner of Pinehurst and uh, and Don, then the president of Pinehurst uh Don Pageant was who had since retired. But uh with Ben and I went and we sat we sat down with them and they said, guys, we've we've really been thinking seriously about the possibility of trying to restore number two course. And uh we'd like for you guys to talk to us about it. And I remember Ben and I both we were just kinda of like, Well, maybe the first question is restore it to what? It had evolved so far from where, you know, had the type of course it had been when mr ross was alive that you you had to look at it and say what what era of pine number two are we going going to try to restore and to us that was the first question i mean because there were very few people quite frankly very few people living who had seen the golf course more in the character that mr ross had had uh, developed there for the course and so when i say it's terrifying don pageant and bob Deadman didn't make it any easier because i remember they both looked at ben and me and they said well that's up to you guys oh no <laughs> you go, oh thanks okay <laughs> well it, you know chris you, you start thinking about it though and you think Number two course, its it's reputation, I think, more than ever, was established, you know, from the time it was first begun until, uh, well, particularly from 1935 when Mr. Ross redid it in preparation for the, the PGA Championship the following year. But uh, from that period until the very early 1960s uh, or even middle 1960s, then I felt like that was the number two course: the character, the strategy, the appearance, the everything that and that that had established its its worldwide character. And so we we went to Mr. Deadman and and Don Pageant and said, "This is this is what we would try to go back to if you're you know agreeing to do this." And they agreed with that assessment, and it was a. Uh, they walked away out on the limb, Chris. I mean, Bob, Deadman, you know, I remember him standing out there because you have to put in the context that Pioneer's number no. two had gone far, far away from what it was in from the early 60s back to 1935 or even beyond, and it had grass everywhere. I walked out on one of the holes, one of the, when I first went there to look at it when they first called about possibly restoring it. And I counted six heights of cut of grass <laughs> on one hole. Six. And, and, well, now, one of them, in fairness, was no cut, you know, just uh-huh. neon native type stuff out there. But uh, six different heights of grass on one hole. And most all the sand and wire grass and things that I remembered as a kid going out there to play and in the old pictures and, and things was, was gone. And so. Uh, number 2 had become more of a uh, um, kind of a representation of Palm Springs than it had uh, a representation of the sand hills of North Carolina you know which it which it was in Mr. Ross's day so so when we decided to do this Bob Dudman you know we took out nearly 40 acres basically 40 acres of turf off that golf course and I remember Bob standing out there looking as they were hauling grass. I mean, this is a good turf being rolled up and hauled off and given to churches and playgrounds and schools and all this kind of stuff. People, anybody wanted basically. I remember Bob standing there going, "Well, this is either the this is either the smartest thing I've ever done or the dumbest." And there was real question about that, Chris, because you, you put in the context the business model wasn't broken. Right. Pinehurst was doing fine. There were thousands of people coming there, you know, thousands of people literally still play, playing golf at Pinehurst number two, paying rather large sums of money to do so. And we were talking about changing its entire appearance. And uh, we knew there would be people like you described it, even at Trinity Forest. It's going to be so different. There will be people who will think this is a really, really bad idea. So it it didn't come without risk, and particularly for Bob Deadman.
0: Well, and that's kind of the main argument. You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, architecture junkies will every year that uh, you know the AT and T rolls around, they argue that you know Pebble needs to be restored and should be restored back to its sandier look. But that uh, it's the same thing. It's like, how do you shut down? You know, when you're people are going off at six hundred dollars a tea time. You know, by foursomes every 10 minutes, it's pretty hard to argue. It's like, oh, yeah, that's probably best for everyone if, you know, we just shut the course down for a while and spend a bunch of money tearing it up and can't let anybody play for a long period of time right
1: exactly kapalua has just gone through it chris <laughs> yeah i was gonna say
0: let's talk about that yeah. one then what uh you know you guys i forget what year kapalua opened after you guys i know it was the early 90s maybe mid 90s um what what had happened to kapalua over over time that you know caused you guys to come in for refinement and what uh what will that look like when people see it in january
1: well uh yes kapalua the plantation course opened in 91 spring of 91 um and what had happened, Chris? You you pretty much uh, hit upon it right there. Is Capo is very, very popular resort. Uh, you know, it's, uh, there are golfers wanting to play all the time, and uh, very very little downtime for the course. And you think about it, I guess twenty eight years of um, constant play and in Kapalua the grass you don't have winters obviously so it doesn't go dormant doesn't stop growing so it's been growing for 28 years (laughs) and it does slow down the winter because of the daylight hours get shorter but still it um, it had evolved over that time period from a golf course that you could use the sweeping just sweeping long contours of the land uh, you could use those landforms and the the elevation changes, particularly downhill, and most importantly the wind angles, particularly downwind. You could use those to land the ball far short of the greens. Use the use the ground to get the the ball to continue to tumble along, along and run to the putting surface, and that was the intent of the golf course. It was a it's a very windy site. It's a it's a giant site of a giant scale, you know the sweeps, the landforms, and, and then given the wind effects, it needed to be a course of, of very large scale. And what we tried to do all those years ago was create a golf course that showcased the property, obviously the vistas and the process, but uh, but showcase the property and use the land. To enable you to play some hopefully some enjoyable golf and it used to be a golf course that the resort player could go play they could hit tee shots out there even if they didn't hit that far in the air they would start to roll and roll and roll and keep rolling and as a result they could reach you know holes sometimes in two shots and and things that uh, they wouldn't likely ever do at home because of the firmness of the ground and over the years the golf course changed dramatically and just just by the evolution of turf growing and, and getting more thatch built up and more softer and softer and holding more water you know as it as the turf became thicker and um, so it became a golf course where tee shots would go out there and not roll very far mm-hmm. and uh, the course then became far too long for the resort players and in the process it became far too easy for the best players in the world who were playing Hmm. there in the tournament of champions because if you think about it you know the the conditions that defend against the best players like we talked about earlier are uh, (laughs) you know firmness of ground tightness of the turf speed of greens uh combined with with slopes and wind those are those are elements that can defend almost any golf course and uh in this process of evolution with the turf at kapalua um the best players in the world who could hit the ball easily far enough on any hole even the par fives to reach in in two Even with softer turf conditions, they could play to certain parts of the fairway with no fear of running through the fairway into something, uh, you know, treacherous. They could play to the greens aerially with no fear of bounding over, which used to happen in the early years at Kapalua. And so the course just became easier and easier for the very best and particularly the strongest players. And to play from point A to point B to point C, and with with confidence in each of those points, what we hope has happened because they've regrassed the golf course, being regrown in, people won't see visually it will look just like the, you know, the course that's been there for the past 28 years. But we hope that uh, the playability aspects of the course have been restored. And by that, again, I'm talking about the, the firmness of the turf, the, the ability to hit shots out there, you know, for the average players who just run, 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 they run seemingly forever. And yet for the best players, make them have to be more thoughtful or more precise as to where they land their tee shots in some of those enormously wide fairways just to keep the ball from run, not running 100 or more yards into something they, where they don't in a position where they don't want to be. And and in the again going toward the greens, restore the idea that yes, if the if the pin is in a certain part of these you know large greens, you may if you're into the wind and particularly a bit uphill into the wind, you may be able to fly it back toward the pin. But you won't be able to do that no matter how much spin you can put on a ball. If you're, if you're playing downhill, downwind, and the grain of the grass is growing toward the oceans, all those things work in the same direction at Kapala. And so I think you probably this year, Chris, if you watched the tournament this year and you went back and watched it from, you know, the the early 1990s, I think you may see the course play very, very similar.
0: I was going to say, yeah, it's not the uh, it's not getting the ball to go far that concerns professionals. It's getting it to stop. So exactly, they, uh, not
1: going too far.
0: <laughs> exactly, where they fear the runouts is where that's what always makes the you know the British Open so interesting. And I've always said the most interesting golf hole I watched last year was watching guys play the sixth hole at uh, at Carnoustie because they couldn't figure out what to do with it with that, the OB left and the bunker down the middle, and they couldn't get the ball to stop. They didn't know where to where to aim it, but uh, transitioning to another job that I know is a popular one you get, you get asked about a lot and it's kind of a, a course that is maybe not a lot of people realize is so, is very responsible for kind of changing the landscape of, you know, modern golf course design and, and resorts and everything it's sand Hills. And I kind of want to know how you guys got on the radar for building that golf course and, uh, what was the, uh, your initial thoughts when you heard about a place, you know, where there's just no one anywhere <laughs> near the golf course. How uh, concerned you were about getting people to play it, and uh, what what the what what got you guys you know what eventually landed you guys at Sandhills, Nebraska.
1: Well, Dick Youngs Cap, the founder of uh, the Sandhills Golf Club there in Nebraska. Dick, um, you know, Dick was a golfer. He was uh, he enjoyed it. He was more of a recreational you know golfer, and uh, but he had he was an architect. I mean, a real one, building architect. By profession but he he had uh, developed a project called Firethorn in Lincoln Nebraska it was a pete Dye golf course and it was done in the 1980s and uh, was you know quite successful it was a combination of a golf club with a very good golf course and uh, and some residential but Pete had uh, pete, uh, dick had a uh, brother in law, John Lee was his name, who was a rancher in the sand hills. And Dick and his wife Barb would, you know, on a fairly regular basis, go up for family gatherings and things to the sand hills. And he would drive through this all these sand dunes. And and uh he he would just <laughs> you'd have to talk to Dick about this, but my my sense is he he just kept visualizing this this looks like what I see in Ireland and Scotland and these places, these classic old courses, and this may be ideally suited for golf. And and he uh, he came up with a this idea that uh, maybe we should explore the possibility of building building a golf course. And uh, Chris, to say it was uh, it was uh, most people thought it was outlandish. It was uh, you know you heard of Crump's Folly at Pine Valley? Well, believe me. Young Scout's folly at the Sand Hills was equally ridiculed, you know, in the beginning because there are no people. There are two people per square mile on average where the Sand Hills was built. <laughs> and yet, Dick was a firm believer that the best golf courses in the world are site driven and not demographically driven. That if you found a really, or truly special site, and did something complimentary to that site, he had the chance to do, to do, you know, just a, an extraordinary golf course. And that was his, his background with this. And so he, he was sort of tiptoeing in all this, but had been thinking about it. And he asked Ben and I to come and take a look. And I remember when he called to ask us, and amazing enough, we were both in the office, and he called to see if we might come. To the sand hills of nebraska and, and ben or i neither one had been there but it was interesting chris because years before in uh, i want to say it's in national geographic magazine ben had read a story about ranching in the sand hills of nebraska and he talked about remembering so vividly the photographs that accompanied that story he he would just remember looking at it go, wow, that's, that's, that's just looks like golf you know <laughs> and uh, the story was obviously about ranching and not golf but ben's uh, recollection he soon as dick young's caps at sandhills of nebraska the proverbial light bulb went off with ben like whoa I, I i i remember what those photographs looked like i'd like to see that in my case a very similar thing happened on that same phone call because when Dick mentioned the Sand Sandhills, Nebraska, I, I remembered years before I was doing some work at Prairie Dunes, you know, in Hutchison, Kansas, and Doug Peterson, who was then the superintendent at Prairie Dunes and was originally from Nebraska, I remember walking down the 8th fairway at Prairie Dunes and just an extraordinarily beautifully contoured fairway in the dunes And and I remember saying to Doug, Doug, can you imagine having a piece of property like this to work with? And Doug Peterson turned to me in the 8th fairway at Prairie Dunes He said, Bill, I know where there's land even better than this. And I looked at him, I said, where? He said the Sand Hills in Nebraska. And of course, I'd never been to Nebraska, so I thought Nebraska was just a cornfield, you know, flat. And when Doug Peterson said that, and I remembered because not long, but well, it may have been three or four years before that, I was having a conversation with Ron Witten, the architecture editor still to this day of Golf Digest. And Ron's from Nebraska. And I remember asking him, I said, well, Ron, you know, what... Of all the places, what's the best land for golf you've ever seen? He said Sand Hills in Nebraska. And so when Dick Young's cap mentioned the Sand Hills in Nebraska, I'm thinking about Ron Whitten, I'm thinking about Doug Peterson, and Ben's thinking about the the photographs he'd seen in the article about the ranchers. And we both just kind of look at each other. We'll be there. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs>
0: so yeah, it was.
1: Uh, and of course, when we got there, it's. It, uh, You know, it's just uh, you have to experience it to believe it.
0: Well, that's the thing is, you know, uh, architects dream of, you know, great sites to build golf courses. But is there, you know, the way the stories that I've heard from Sandhills, it sounds like your guys issue was it was all, I don't, I don't mean this lightly. It was almost too good of a site for golf. And that you're, once you got there, you're a bit overwhelmed with the options you have to do a routing. So uh, the story is a bit famous at this point, but how long did you walk the routing, walk the land before you came up with the routing? And how, how many holes did you guys come up with and different routings did you have before you settled in the final 18?
1: Well, Chris, we were, we made numerous trips up there. I, I don't, uh, from memory I don't remember how I many it was over about a 2 year period cuz Dick Young's cap was trying first of all they had to buy the property and it was it was for sale but they had to put together a group to get the funding to buy the property then Dick had to put together another group to to get some funding you know to to build the golf course and so that was a you know a, a laborious and time consuming process that he was going through Meanwhile, Ben and I were going up there, walking around through all those dunes and trying to narrow it down. First of all, it was eighty-one hundred acres, so you, you got to narrow it down, and that didn't take too long to get down to a thousand acres. And then, but still, 1, acres, a thousand acres—a lot of ground to keep walking yeah. over, and particularly when there's no starting point. There's nothing out there. So you have to start here, you have to start there. Topo maps were worthless because they just had you know (laughs) contours on a topo map which was uh didn't have any aerial photography then and with topo so we just had uh you know if you had a topo map it just it it just looked like ten thousand cheerios you know on a (laughs) on a piece of paper so it it didn't tell you much because you didn't know which little dune or hole you were standing in and um it was just a process of, of going up, spending like a week or sometimes 10 days at a time and just wandering about and marking things on the ground and remembering where those were and just trying to put together holes. And, yes, there's that what's now become quite, I guess, well-known story that we did. We, we laid out 118 holes, actually. Actually, you could almost say it was 132, but uh, they we we eliminated some pretty quickly. But uh, they were on the ground, but obviously they weren't going to all be there. They crisscrossed each other as soon as, as soon as you decide we'll pick this one and that one, you probably eliminated three three others, you know, or more. And it it was just this process. We had the luxury of time, and so it was a process of wandering through there, putting it together. And then finally, at some point, saying, this is what we're going to go with. You know, we're going to go with this, knowing, as has well been the case, that people would come up there and say, oh, you could build holes anywhere. Well, that wasn't quite correct. you go walking around through there. You find out you don't build holes quite anywhere. But we knew that we had an, ex- well, we had a, just one of the world's, extraordinary pieces of property to work with and if we didn't build a truly extraordinary golf course we failed it was that simple and so there again that i've had people say wasn't building the sand hills wasn't that a lot of fun there's a lot of ways i'd describe it and rewarding is maybe at the top of the list fun. Mm, i don't know about that <laughs> uh you know but just the, the the extreme potential it offered made it a uh Again, kind of like pioneers, quite frightening proposition because you knew the odds for failure could be extreme. But now we put together the the final 18 that we felt like we wanted to build. And I remember walking out there with Ben, just the two of us. The course had not officially opened, and he and I were out playing golf on the course. And we were walking along, and we were nearing the end of the round. And I, I said to him, I said, Ben. Is there anything else we should have done? Because the worst thing we wanted to do was to go out after the course was finished and say, we should have, we should have gone there. We should have gone here. And I said, is there anything you would change now that we're out here in the midst of it with the finished product? And he said, no, I'm very happy. And I was too, you know? And so, you know, it's just, it's just one of those uh, extraordinary opportunities, Chris. And you mentioned the, the effect it's had on golf architecture, we, we, we just knew it was an extraordinary opportunity to do something special, but we never, never in our wildest imagination dreamed that, uh, it would have the effect of that, that it has had on, uh, on golf architecture.
0: So the the effect that I was you know mentioning that you acknowledged there was you know what came next maybe not necessarily next but the sand hills was a big inspiration for Bandon Dunes. So I want to know where your you've done a lot of work with Mike Kaiser in the uh, in the third, twenty years uh, twenty five years since then. Where did your relationship with him start? And were you were you guys ever in the running to do either of the first two courses uh, at Bandon Dunes?
1: Well, Mike Kaiser um, was actually a founding member uh of the sandhills i met mike at the sandhills initially uh i didn't get to know him i just merely met him i didn't didn't know him at all and didn't really know him you know after that i just remember meeting him there but uh mike is you know certainly the sandhills was influential in in what Mike was wanting to do, although he'd already done the nine-hole Dunes course, you know, up in New Buffalo, Michigan, which was so well done and, and but was private, and Mike was, you know, he I, he had had this desire. To find a piece of property to do something interesting in dunes along an ocean. This all tracks back to his his particularly a trip he took to Dornick in Scotland and his love of seaside golf. But uh, he Mike was the, I think I think he would tell you, you'd have to ask him, but I think he would say that Sand Hills was influential, you know, into in his thinking that he would he would start to pursue one of these things. He, his difference was he wanted to be public access golf. So he, you know, he, he'd spend a lot of time on a talking Dick Young's cap. And when the, when the opportunity abandoned presented itself, Mike took advantage of that. He got the property. And, um, of course, you know, got David McClay kid, uh, to do the first course, which was a very good choice and a very good move. And, uh, On Mike's part but I think Mike would be the first to tell you uh, Chris he wasn't sure that bandit was gonna be a success he thought he just wanted to see what this was like to build a course in the dunes on the ocean and he Mike's told me he felt like if it if he could just break even with it somehow it would be a success I'm not sure he ever really in the beginning initially envisioned multiple golf courses there and as you know, as, as Bannon went the first year and was so successful, it, it gave reason for Mike to expand and, and move into what uh, became Pacific Dunes, which was certainly established Mike's principle of <laughs> its geometric, not necessarily arithmetic, <laughs> progression, in that one plus one is three, not just two, in terms of its appeal to bring people and as Mike would say, you need two courses for a destination. And uh, what Tom Doke, and Jim Urbina and the guys that did at Pacific Dunes, of course, was just extraordinary. And the combination of that with Bandon Dunes Golf Course cemented Bandon Dunes as a golf destination. And, you know, did did Mike consider us to do one of those Um Yes, he would say, I would defer to him to give the correct description. But sure. in general, in general, he—I've heard him say more than once that he did consider us uh, to do the course at Bandon, um, but we had just finished the Sandhills, and he just—he just felt like he would be better going in a in a different direction to not have abandoned be perceived as just you know coming along in a line of of things that we were doing and he, his was absolutely the right decision that being said it did lead to later you know he did contact us about the uh doing what it became abandoned trails and then, of course, later the preserve, and then here most yeah. recently the sheep ranch. <laughs> I
0: was going to say, though, the relationship has worked out wonderfully, but were you guys at all hesitant to be the first inland course at Bandon? Did you, uh, you know, was there, what was that kind of process like for you guys, or were you just pretty much thrilled to be uh, working on that property? You
1: know, it wasn't, uh, It it wasn't, A serious concern of ours, Chris. I mean, Mike, when he first called, he was very candid about it. He said, Bill, you and Ben may not be interested in this. It's not on the ocean. It's going to be perceived as the course not on the ocean. And uh, I remember saying to Mike then, I said, Mike, let me come out. Let's study the property some and we'll see. If we feel like we can do something, it will complement the other two courses. That's all we ask. If we don't want to go build a golf course, the going to be perceived as, quote, totally the third course and no one wants to go play it now yeah obviously we didn't want to do that not just for our sake but for the sake of the resort but i said let's let's look at it so yeah went out and started looking walking about studying it and uh, uh you know just came to the conclusion that we could do some interesting golf here and it's going to be very different than you other know, the two courses but we felt like it would have an appeal to people and um Certainly, in its in its very early years, Bandon Trails was, uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure quite a number of people perceived it as the third course. It's not on the ocean, you know, but um, you know, it's proven itself pretty well. Chris, oh, yeah. it's uh, <laughs> I I remember I remember when we finished there, and I was talking to Mike, and I said, Mike. You know, we've been fortunate at this point in our careers to be able to work on some really neat places. But you watch this one. You watch abandoned Trails. It'll probably start off like, well, it's the course not on the ocean. But there's some really neat stuff and detail out there that we think will start to, you know, appeal to people as they experience the course more frequently. And it'll start to reveal itself. And and, um, it will probably become more and more appreciate as time goes by which seems to have proven out
0: for sure I, I absolutely love Bannon Trails. I was gonna say I think I think Mike Kaiser made up for it by giving you guys the site that you guys are building the sheep ranch on currently so talk I, I, this is a very unique golf course um you know it's gotten a lot of publicity lately I haven't been out there yet but it is a bunkerless golf course perched atop even even higher cliffs, from my understanding. That uh, that Bannon and Pacific are on. What are what were some of the challenges of this job? What made this one unique, and why is this? Uh, you know, are people raving about this site so much?
1: Well, Chris, uh, you're right. I mean, Mike's yet again has given us an opportunity that, if you're in our profession, there there's just simply no way you can describe how grateful you are for it. I mean. Uh, it's, it's a truly special site, and it's different than any of the other sites uh, at Bandon. It's, uh, it, the difference starts immediately with the coastline, which is much more varied in terms of uh, direction than at the at Bandon Dunes or Pacific Dunes. Those two courses, the holes that are along the coast, basically uh, the coast is very linear. So you either play to the coast, away from the coast, or along it uh At the sheep ranch, there are a couple of promontories that stick out into the ocean that uh, afford the opportunities to play you know not just to the ocean but then diagonally across the ocean back to the the to the mainland so to speak and and in in different directions and It was a mile of coastline at sheep ranch and It was configured in such a way that it just gave us the opportunity to come to it and go away and come back again, play along it, play, you know, in all different directions in proximity to the ocean. And, uh, you know, it's just something you you don't often see. And then the landforms themselves that had been created by both natural and human activities out there, had uh were just so enticing for golf some of those beautiful contours and undulations for golf that you could hope to see and people often think of the when they look at the sheep ranch from a distance think it's flat it's anything but flat, it's just sweeping swirling twirling, <laughs> twisting contours, and you know it's got some it's got some elevation change to it, but it's it's not mountainous in any sense, and it's it's just um it's just beautiful landform yeah, for a, golf. Yeah.
0: It looks incredible. It really does. And I've yeah. I've always said, you know, if you know, any critique of a, a golf course that doesn't have elevation change and you know is 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 kind of perceived as flat, but there's a big difference between uh, no elevation change and flat if you ask me i mean the old course is does not have elevation change but it is not flat by any regard yeah. so i imagine a site that you know doesn't have elevation change and doesn't have a lot of bunkers means there's going to be some very intriguing contours am i am i uh, sniffing around the right uh, the right bush there no question chris uh, the golf course is based upon contours mm-hmm.
1: well it's based
0: upon contours
1: and uh, well I guess you'd be back up here. It's based first and foremost upon the shoreline. second the contours, third the wind and um it's it, those three elements will make it interesting I think and Ben and I and all of us who've worked on it will we think it'll make the golf course interesting for whether it's resort players or, or, or far varying capabilities or the very best players in the world. We think would go out there and have an enjoyable time and, and be tested quite frankly. And uh, so it's uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how it all goes, but it's uh, we were just, again, it was just so amazing. I remember when Mike Kaiser called, and asked if I'd come study the property and I went out and I met with him and his his old college roommate, business partner for so many years, Phil Friedman and their co-owners of the the land at Sheep Ranch and I remember meeting with Phil and Mike and just talking about what were they envisioning and at one point, because I knew other people, Tom and Jim Jim and even Gil had been out there looking at it so I was quite surprised that that they wanted us to, you know, give a study, so to speak. But uh, I just, I remember talking to Mike, standing there, and just saying, Mike, you've given us so many opportunities. I I almost feel guilty about this. (laughs) And and he said, well, Bill, I remember when, because I was, we're backing up here now to Bandon Dunes Resort, when we were doing Bandon Trails. I was taken over to the property that later became Old McDonald. And I'm looking at all these beautiful contours on the ground. They're close to the ocean and all this. And so I was asking Mike, I said, Mike, why are we back here in the trees trying to deal with this giant dune ridge and all this when we could be down here working? And he would laugh and he said, Well, that's for later, sometime, sometime. And, but then <laughs> when later came here, just when the, as I was describing when I was down there at sheep ranch with Mike and Phil, and he goes, "Well, Bill, you guys worked away from the ocean. Maybe it's time you work on the ocean." Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're gonna we're gonna throw it out there, Chris, and we're gonna see what people have to say. But uh, we're pretty proud of it.
0: Wow, I'm excited to see it. Uh, you've been extremely generous with your time. I'm going to get you out of here on this last question. And uh, if you'll ever come back, I've got a hold of. We got a ton of projects that you've worked on that we haven't got a chance to talk about. But is there anything you guys haven't done that you'd love to do? Anything you know? I'm thinking along the lines of you know we didn't really talk much about Bandon Preserve, but it's just an unbelievable par three course there at Bandon. But uh, what's something out there that you guys haven't done that you're really interested in doing? Mm, very good. Question: Chris, I, we have again been so fortunate. We've
1: been given truly extraordinary sites to work with. We've been, we've been given some. We've, I've been given and accepted some very difficult sites to work with. We've now worked on a landfill at Trendy Forest. I wasn't sure we would ever do that, but we <laughs> have. Uh, We've done something in recent years, and you just alluded to one of them, meaning par three courses, and uh, you know the preserve at, at, at Bandon, and then the sandbox at Sand Valley, and par three course at Friars. We've, we've done several par three courses before, but all the private clubs: Friars, Colorado Golf Club, Boston Golf Club, those things. But a chance, Ben and I, for years. Because we both grew up playing on par 3 courses and 9-hole and courses and, and different types of not just 18-hole regulation courses. And we used to talk to potential clients about if, if they had a property that was interesting but maybe not quite big enough or had some awkward spots or something that would make 18-holes different, would they consider building a 9-hole course or a par 3 course or a hybrid type of kind of an executive they used to call a course with some a few fours and mostly threes and maybe an odd five or something. Those arguments or those those requests years ago just fell completely on deaf ears because anything other than eighteen holes was considered to be not proper mm-hmm. and and not marketable. And we've we've enjoyed working on these par three courses so much. There again. Thanks almost entirely to Mike Kaiser, because even though we had done par threes at some of the private clubs we'd worked with, they weren't getting, you know, for obvious reason, very few people saw them, a lot of attention. And then Mike decides to do the par three, abandon, and suddenly par three courses are in. And people want them, and now you see them starting to be built, not just at private places, but resort places. And and my sense is, you know, they, they will co- make a comeback into public golf, um, even municipal golf. And that's that's fantastic. I, I, beyond that, I don't know. We've we've done let's see, we've done two two nine hole courses. Through the years, they're both at, you know, membership clubs, so they don't get recognized much. It might be fun to do a, a nine-hole course. Without question, we would be interested in doing another course similar to what we did at Farmington Country Club in Charlottesville, Virginia. Their East course, as it's known, which was a, was a nine-hole regulation course. It's their third nine. But uh was a regulation nine holes that was highly underutilized by the membership, and it was converted into a practice area, teaching area, but a hybrid-type course with uh, short fours, one short par five that plays back up the hill, and a majority of par three holes. And it was just fun to do. It was fun to do. My understanding from from listening now over the last two years is that it's been extremely well received and and fun to play and for members and their guests and and uh certainly for time constraint reasons but just as importantly just from the enjoyment aspect so maybe some more of them, maybe another one of those somewhere
0: there you go yeah that's you know i see how little land some of these so par three courses take up and how much fun people have on, on them and You know, oftentimes 36 holes is too many holes for uh, people in one day. But, you know, 18 plus a par three is just the right amount of balance. So uh, I've really enjoyed seeing those pop up in, in a lot of these places, so.
1: No, no question, Chris. I was, I literally was at Pinehurst last week and I was walking past the cradle, the par three course oh, yeah. there that Gil, that Gil Hans, and Jim Wagner, uh, designed and built there did such a beautiful job. And it was just jammed with folks playing and families and different age groups and stuff. It was just fantastic.
0: And a lot of smiles out there. A lot of people are just having fun yeah. on that little hill. Yeah. So, all right, Bill, thank you so much for joining us. This was extremely enlightening. I know it took a ton of your time, but, uh, I know our listeners are going to really, really appreciate this one. So thank you so much for your time, and uh, enjoy your time at home. And we'd love to have you back sometime.
1: Okay. All right, Chris. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yes. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most.